0: Hi everyone, welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on air. It's April 25th, 2017. I'm gonna be your co-host for this hangout. I'm Leanna Gamber-Thompson, a program associate at the National Writing Project. I'm also a co-author of By Any Media Necessary, which is the book we're gonna be talking about today. I'm hosting this conversation with Rami Kallir. He's an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at University of Colorado Denver. And I'll let him give a full introduction um, in just a couple of minutes. Um, Today's conversation is in part an invitation to a week-long annotathon. that's a week-long group annotation of a chapter of By Any Media Necessary. Um, And we're gonna actually be annotating a chapter by Sangeeta Shrestova, who's here with us today. She'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. We're also joined by Henry Jenkins, Neta Kligler-Vlenchik, who are also authors of By Any Media. Um, And Joe Dillon, who's a teacher in the Aurora Public Schools in Colorado and an organizer of Marginal Syllabus. So thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, thank you to our guests again, I'm so excited to be here with this great group of friends and colleagues. Uh, for those of you who are watching live, we encourage you to post thoughts and questions. Uh, there's a live chat feature which you'll th- see embedded in the video player on YouTube or you can always tweet questions to us using the hashtag connected learning and we'll monitor those and make sure we bring them into the conversation. Um, as we're able. So let's start with a round of introductions. Um, I'd like for everyone to, to just kind of go around and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're located, and, and how you got to this work. So um, we can go from left to right on my screen. Henry Jenkins is on the far left, so I'll let you start, Henry. And it looks like you're on mute, so I'll have you unmute Sorry. yourself, too.
1: There we go. I'm Hi, I'm Henry Jenkins speaking to you from Los Angeles. I'm a professor in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism and in the C- School of Cinematic Arts.
0: Great. So like Joe, you're next.
2: Awesome. I'm Joe Dillon, and I'm coming to you from Aurora, Colorado. I'm at Rangeview High School, where I teach English 11, and I'm a uh, teacher consultant with the Denver Writing Project, which is how I'm so well acquainted with uh, Educator Innovator.
0: Great, thanks, Joe. And I think you win for um, loveliest background. It's very nice.
2: Oh <laughs> <Aw>, shucks! <laughs> thanks, Leanna.
0: All right. So it looks like Netta is up next, and she's actually joining us from Israel. So super excited to have her on.
3: Hi, everyone, and uh, thanks also for accommodating me with the uh, time difference. Uh, um, I'm Netta kligler vilencik I'm an assistant professor at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the co-author of By Any Media Necessary and glad to reconnect with uh, well-known colleagues and new colleagues um, for this webinar today.
0: Great, thanks for being here, Netta. All right, Rami, you're up next.
4: Hey, everybody. My name is Rami Kalir. I'm an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. And that's where I'm joining folks from today. I'm in Denver, Colorado, and I'm one of the organizers of the Marginal Syllabus Project.
5: Great. And Sangeeta. Hi, I'm Sangeeta Shresthova. I work with Henry Jenkins at at the University of Southern California, so I'm also based in Los Angeles. Um, Yeah, Uh, and we work on a variety of projects, including the one that we're discussing today. Great. All right, so we're
0: so happy to have all of you here. Like I said, this is going to be a great conversation. At this point, we have mentioned marginal syllabus a couple of times. Um, So I would love to start us off um, by asking both Raimi and Joe to talk a little bit about marginal syllabus, what is the project, what are some of the goals moving forward, and why are we reading this text um, via the marginal syllabus lens?
4: I'll start off briefly. Uh, The marginal syllabus is an open educator learning effort. We're organizing conversations about topics and in partnership with authors that are sometimes considered marginal to the dominant conventions of schooling, those that might produce inequity, those perhaps marginal voices or marginal perspectives that can disrupt inequity in education. It's also a play on words because the conversations that we curate in open and online spaces, we do so using the technology of web annotation. We're layering conversation on top of texts. And so that brings the conversation literally into the online margins of, for example, a book chapter, like the one that we're having a conversation about this week. And so Joe can talk a little bit more about the partnership efforts that underlie this effort But for the last nine months now closely, we've been organizing these open educator conversations about educational equity and inequity through the Marginal Syllabus Project.
2: Thanks, Ramey. Yeah, and I'll just build on what Ramey explained here. I think it was, what, a little over a year ago, as Ramey and I were were engaged in some work here in my school district which is the aurora, the aurora public schools which is really a large urban setting in a suburb of denver and uh, so we were engaged in equity work uh, equity and technology work in schools kind of in informal professional learning very much inquiry driven and at the same time we were doing that work that was you know working with teachers about how they envisioned the equitable use of educational technology tools we Ramey and I both started to use this tool, Hypothesis, quite a bit. And We thought that the margins and the conversations we were having in the margins was a great place to try to convene some of these equity conversations. And so for however long we've been going on with this, pretty much the duration of this school year, we've had monthly conversations with these authors. And I think, uh, you know, what else is there to say except that this was born out of an experimental professional learning idea that we shared that, you know, was spurred to some degree by Paul Allison on Teachers Teaching Teachers, and, uh, and really, we've tried to emphasize the playful nature of what might take place in the margins. And so even in the margins of the text we'll be talking about today, we already see like GIF files and videos linked that you know, act as a new type of commentary on the text. So I think that's a little bit of a background, except to say that you know, the syllabus there is, is well recorded so far of all the, all the texts we've looked at. And so any of these conversations, though they might be over now, any teacher or anybody you know, working with you know, teachers in a professional learning setting could go back and revisit these conversations that still exist in the margins of these digital texts. So I hope that's enough of an introduction.
4: Yeah, look, I, if I can just add one more quick point, uh, which is that sometimes the technology of web annotation is new to folks, or it might sound a little confusing. And to simplify that concept, platforms like Hypothesis that Joe mentioned allow any reader as a writer to go to any text online and to add a layer of commentary. And in the approach that we've taken in this project, we want to not just mark up texts that we find anywhere, but to actually do so through a partnership model. And that really then brings us into conversation with everybody that's on the webinar today, is that the marginal syllabus really is a curated set of resources, but it's also a curated community of scholars and educators and activists who care a lot about educational equity, who want to have conversations together, and through author partnerships, agree to engage in the kind of dialogue that we can have using technologies like web annotation, but through today's webinar, also bring those conversations into synchronous spaces like this.
0: That's great, and super helpful, both of you. I I wanna give you kind of two two quick follow-ups there. as you mentioned, there have been previous conversations via marginal syllabus, previous annotations. So, um, if you could give a quick shout out Rami, to the marginal syllabus website, so um, people will know where to find those conversations. But also I want to ask both of you, what were some of the key takeaways of, um, engaging in those conversations? So it's like, I read something, make, make notes in the margin, but this is, really opening up such a new opportunity for everyone to be bringing those notes in the margins together for a visible conversation, which is often lighthearted, often, um, you know, can be both lighthearted and serious. So I just wanna kind of ask both of you, um, what did you learn from engaging in those conversations and what kind of value do you think those, does does that lend to the texts themselves?
4: Let me start with just the easy easy aspect there of the, the kind of practicalities of the marginal syllabus, again, being an online curated syllabus. And the website will be shared via the links on the webinar. Uh, the website is very easy uh, to remember and access. It's just marginal uh, syllabus, but it's .us. Um, and we've worked with all kinds of authors uh, in partnership from folks who have done work previously with the National Writing Project um, to educators, K-12 educators who are writing about their practice and you can find an entire list of all of our offer partners uh, and all of their texts and all of the curated conversations uh, on our website and I just want to thank you know all of the nearly a dozen authors uh, from all you know academic interests and educational backgrounds who have partnered with us since August to help advance this effort forward. If it wasn't for their generosity and their texts and their sharing of their writing and their care about issues of equity in education, we wouldn't be having these conversations. Some of the kind of key takeaways from then the discourse that that happens. Sure. I think
2: uh, one of the things that's been interesting to me as we convene these conversations is the way um, authors and, and participants often sort of unpack their experiences, and they talk about their reading process, which is just fascinating to me because, you know, I've been a literacy coach in schools for a while, and I'm very interested in how the reading process, you know, works with these new media tools. And so it's always interesting for me when people talk about how the comments in the margin play into their reading processes. And then I think the other thing that we've noticed has been interesting is that even when we wanted to limit these conversations to one hour a week, we tried to get people to convene in kind of a flash mob experience where they're all annotating at the same time and seeing each other's tweets come up, or I should say, see each other's annotations come up in real time. What we found was that the conversation went well beyond the one hour and that I will still get notices in my email of somebody responding to a note I made three months ago. And so We've now expanded these annotate a thons to a week long, but I think the idea that these conversations initiate in the margins and then can go on for, you know, in a slow trickle for as many, you know, for months with authors and, and really interested readers.
0: Okay, that's great. So I encourage all of our viewers to check out those past conversations. Let's move toward By Any Media Necessary, which is the book that um, we have at Educator Innovator chosen a chapter to annotate. Um, via this new partnership with Marginal Syllabus this month. Sangeeta is on with us She's the author of the chapter we're going to be annotating and we will kind of return um, At the end of this webinar to explain how to use hypothesis and where to annotate the text online um, It's actually super simple. So we'll give you all the details at the end of the conversation but let's um, kind of move to by any media necessary and um I'm hoping maybe, and Remy jump in here too um, with questions, but I'm hoping that maybe Henry and Netta can give us a little bit of an overview of the project, how it came about, and then um, Sangeeta can talk specifically about her chapter. So I don't know if one, um, Henry, do you want to kind of start about um, with how the research got started?
1: Sure. Um, Why Any Media Necessary grew out of our participation at USC in the MacArthur Foundation funded uh, Youth and Participatory Politics Research Network. Uh, headed by Joseph Kahn, the network really was a multi-institutional, multidisciplinary look at the political lives of American youth today. Combined quantitative and qualitative research methodologies and has yielded a whole wealth of research projects. Our part was ethnographic. We were trying to understand networks that have had a powerful impact in getting young people involved in the political process. Altogether, we interviewed more than 200 young activists about their experiences. Um, Partially, what we were trying to do was challenge some of the dominant stereotypes of young people's political involvement. We had, you know, on the one hand, there's a kind of slacktivist critique that when young people go online, they're doing something that isn't quite politics, that doesn't really have real world political impact. And on the other end was the hype about Twitter revolutions, Facebook revolutions, especially coming out of the Arab Spring. And we sort of take a middle position there. We see Twitter, Facebook, other n- digital media as one tool among many that young people are using to change the political landscape. We use the phrase, by any media necessary, as a tribute to Malcolm X's phrase, by any media means necessary. Malcolm X. W- when he delivered those lines, was actually describing a whole set of mechanisms by which the civil rights movement was ch- seeking to change American society. Among them were grassroots media and youth-led activism. And so we think it's a very appropriate reference. But by any media necessary, we mean that young activists are certainly using digital technology, but they're using a whole range of other tools, including traditional street protest and print and you know, so forth, to bring about a, bring about change on the issues that matter to them. And I think we've seen those things work in concert since the election last fall. If we look at the Women's March or the March this weekend on science, we can see everything from posters to street art to the digital to video playing important roles in those protests. Now, one of the things we heard over and over again from young activists was that they felt the language of American politics was busted, that, um, The language was exclusive insofar as it didn't invite young people into the process, that it didn't seem you needed to already be a policy wonk to understand why the candidates were saying what they were saying, and news media was not providing the general introduction needed for that. And it was seen as repulsive because it was already bound up with partisanship and wasn't seeking common ground. So out of that, we've started to explore what we call the civic imagination, and that's where our current research is taking us. The civic imagination is basically before you can change the world, you have to imagine what a better world looks like. You have to imagine the process of change. see yourself as an agent capable of making change as part of a larger community of shared interest as having empathy and solidarity with people whose perspective differs from your own and for the most marginalized to imagine equality, reciprocity, and freedom before you 've directly experienced it so we 're interested in how are young people forging a new kind of civic imagination, and what the book found and what we're finding in our research since is that pop culture references play a crucial role in framing the civic imagination. It could be the Harry Potter Alliance that Netta wrote about in her chapter, you you know, it could be Hunger Games, it could be superheroes. We've been tracing, for example, the appearance of Princess Leia on feminist signs uh, at the Women's March and Beyond. Uh, As kind of an example of women's places in the resistance, one of the slogans goes, a way of imagining a heroic ideal of who who can change the world and forging an identity of civic participation that young people feel a strong alliance with. Now, you were going to say a bit about the case studies we developed and maybe you can add a bit about the Harry Potter Alliance as part of that mix.
3: Yes, that's right. Um, So in addition to the chapter um, that Sangita Hristova wrote about American Muslims that we're reading and talking about today, our book um, features several um, key case studies and um, Liana, you're here under two hats in a way as our host, our co-host today, and also the author of the chapter on Liberian youth, and our colleague Irelie um, Zimmerman uh, wrote a chapter around um, dream activists, um, and really the different um, chapters the different case studies all feature innovative groups, groups that are youth-focused, and groups that we found made a creative um, use of media um, to further their civic and political goals, and the groups that I focused on um, in my chapter are groups that grow out of um, fan communities and out of uh, popular culture interests, um, so Henry Flee mentioned the Harry Potter Alliance which is uh, one of the main groups I was looking at. Um, The Harry Potter Alliance is a nonprofit organization that uses metaphors and um, ideas emanating from the Harry Potter narratives but most of all um, sort of built on the infrastructure of the fan community, the very um, active fan community that was built around the Harry Potter narratives and uh, leverage that at any um, civic and political um, change. Uh, my chapter also looks at uh, other cases, such as um, the nerd fighters who are nerds who fight to uh, decrease world suck, which is uh, their way to talk about uh, making the world a better place. Um, and the different cases really inform each other. So I think even though today we're focusing on Sangeeta's chapter and American Muslims, um, the findings and the concepts and the ideas were um, really Uh, informing our other chapters, and our other chapters inform them, and so it's really part of this uh, mutual conversation. Fantastic.
0: And um, so we've mentioned it several times now, so um, drum roll, let's um, talk a little bit about Senkita's chapter. Um, This is going to be the text that we will annotate via marginal syllabus. Tell us a little bit about um, the population that you studied in the chapter, young American Muslims. What were some of your key findings, um, and and why and how does this continue to be so relevant in this moment? That's like ten questions in one. But feel free to tackle one of those, um, and tell us a little about a bit about your chapter. Thank you.
5: Yeah, as I was thinking about um, what to say today, I realize, I feel like every every day really brings some news that's relevant to. The work I did and on this chapter, and I don't think I've ever done a research project that has been so—I um, don't even—I don't even have a word for it, but it's just so current all the time, and it's shifting so quickly. So, I will kind of, as I re- as I reflect on it, I feel like I would write a different chapter now, right? But I'm going to talk about it as it was in the text, and then we can kind of talk about where it's gone since. Um, yeah, when I started out on the on the project, I entered into the space actually through, I guess I, I wear many hats and many identities, um, but it was really through my South Asian connections being half Nepalese and being really tapped into the South Asian community here in the U.S. And I was starting to be we thinking about the case studies and the lineup and that we needed and we wanted various case studies in there. And I was really seeing some really great work initially. It, um, through my with my colleagues that are South Asian, but Muslim, South Asian American and Muslim. And that's how I entered into the case. And as, as I was, I, I realized very soon that I needed an organization that would help me enter that space. Um, because it's It's really a space that's very fraught in the sense that there's a lot of surveillance, there's a lot of fear of surveillance, and so it was a very specific case study in terms of the methodology. I ended up working with the Muslim Public Affairs Council, which is an organization based here in Los Angeles, and the Muslim Youth Group, which is affiliated with the Islamic Center of Southern California. So, And those two organizations are kind of sister organizations. They share similar founding histories. And a lot of people have gone back and forth. And what I ended up doing through those organizations is that that's how I entered into the space occupied by particular networks of American Muslim youth in the United States um, at that time. And the age range was between 15 to about 25, um, a little bit older on the older end, a little bit younger on the younger end. Um, And yeah, I, I spent a year with those communities. In fact, I got the best attendance award in the, I would like to joke about that, I got the best attendance award in the Sunday school at the mosque because I was there every Sunday for the whole semester and nobody else was except for the researcher. So, um, the, as, as our work with Henry has moved into looking at civic imagination, I feel like if I really was to summarize what I observed those young people doing over the t- period that I observed them was, they were really imagining communities. They were imagining what it means to be American and Muslim in a context after 9-11, which is what they knew given that age group. And really what I kind of felt I was witnessing was the coming of age of a distinctly distinctly post 9-11 generation. So they grew up with the reality that American Muslim identities were very politicized, that they had to um, speak for a whole community that actually is so diverse that it's impossible to speak for it, but they were constantly put on the spot and asked to represent. And so they were kind of grappling with that as they were reconciling both their religious identity, but also their civic identity living in America. Um, What I was seeing in terms of the practices that Henry was referencing was that they were working by any media necessary in the sense that they were really making heavy use of social media networks informal networks any any media that would allow them to share stories but also organize and partially that was this was because the formal organizations were just catching up to the realities that these youth were facing a lot of the organizations were kind of still grappling with what it means to have an open dialogue around issues that they were asking themselves, what it means to really respond quickly to shifting political issues or things that were developing in the news, and that these informal networks were actually a great place to do that. Um, A lot of the content that I was seeing shared was around telling stories, telling stories of first-person experience of... Um, responding to representations in the media, coming up with alternative representations of what it means to be American Muslim, drawing on pop culture, um but and using those stories both as a way to share and build a community in terms of the imagination that they've shared of those stories but also as really a practical way to organize so what i was seeing was a sh- transition between just using stories as a as a voice as a, as a way to express yourself but also as a practical way to really build a movement effectively um and that all exists that that whole space of, of expression existed within a climate uh, intense. That um, was very fraught around privacy and surveillance concerns, and privacy concerns in the normal sense. I mean, every you know, all of us face this. All of us think about what we post, what we don't post. For the American Muslims, I think this was that I that I interviewed and I spoke to. This was even more fraught because they were sort of having to face up with other interpretations of what Islam is, or what other interpretations of what American Muslim identities are all about, and that they were actually, there was a lot of sort of policing within the communities that was happening in online spaces. So it was kind of fraught from that perspective. There was always somebody also ready from, from an Islamophobic perspective to post something as soon as they put up a blog or anything like that. And then, of course, there was the specter of imagined or real surveillance from government authorities, um, and I saw that play out many way in many times, and it really rendered these these efforts really precarious and um, fragile because any event um, could really shatter. Um, the connectedness and the networking that was happening, and I saw it kind of move between online and offline spaces several times. in as I was doing the research, and even more so now as we've moved into an even new era uh, around these these issues. Can you ask me a follow up question if you want me to ask?
1: Keep so there's a lot. <laughs> things, there's
5: a
4: lot of so again, just thank you for sharing your your research with us so fully. Um, you know, given the theme of this webinar and really of, of our marginal syllabus project on being in these hybrid spaces of moving across boundaries, both practically and also metaphorically, I'm wondering if if all of, of, of the authors of us today uh, can speak a little bit about the role that media practices play in quite literally mediating some of that hybridity, some of that uh, kind of marginal being. You, you mentioned just a few minutes ago the fact that these youth had to navigate being both American and Muslim. Uh, in your chapter, you use words like liminal and dual, and you speak a lot about the kind of identity work and, and negotiation that occurs both individually but also socially. And I'd be curious, both in your chapter and in the book as a whole, in By Any Media Necessary, you can talk about how youth are using media to navigate their identities. To have kind of multiple selves, multiple stories, multiple communities, and perhaps what we as educators can and can learn from that.
5: Do any of the other authors want to jump in? I feel like I've talked, I talked, I said a lot in the last few minutes, so I'm happy to keep talking.
0: I think Henry is making the keep talking motion
3: oh, Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and
0: then maybe we'll jump over to him and Netta also to talk about it.
5: I, I guess it, it will, it, it, this is, I think maybe where. well, I don't, I'm not actually going to make generalizations because the different case studies were very different and very similar in some ways where on one level, the American Muslim youth moved actually quite fluidly between Online and offline spaces like they they didn't actually Differentiate between online friends and offline friends in that sense or like those are not my real friends Those are my kind of online friends. They actually didn't make that differentiation Um, But what I actually saw in my case study and I feel like I've seen it happen even more more recently is this external pressure of of the of whether or not this is somehow being watched or surveilled or Um, And I feel like that's really actually affected the kind of discourse that I'm seeing online more recently where there is this fear of your Facebook it's much more likely that your Facebook profile will be scrutinized by an immigration officer than your phone conversation that you had with a friend or something you discussed over coffee just because it's so documented and exists in that online space and so I actually felt i feel like the the in the in the sort of impulse of the of the youth that i spoke to they didn't actually they were much they were very fluid and moving between online and offline spaces and and exploring their identities and they were very smart about identifying places where online let's say social networks were places they could have discussions they couldn't have in, in everyday face-to-face conversations let's say in their mosque but what i'm seeing really is like external pressure that's that's really um, actually kind of damaging the vitality of what can happen in those online spaces that's kind of i guess would be unfortunately kind of my conclusion kind of a two years out of that case study
1: well, let me maybe say a word about the Dreamer case in the book, which is a kind of interesting parallel or contrast to Sangeeta's chapter, because you know we we wrote a bit, and Liana was one of the co-authors on this, wrote about the um, coming out video as a phenomenon of the Dreamer movement. That they, many of the Dreamers said that when it started, they weren't sure that they knew anyone who was undocumented. They were so much in the closet and the process of creating these videos and coming out and putting them online and addressing them to a variety of other communities they participated in was an important part of forging that network. But it also had the effect of bridging the people, you know, non, you know, all kinds of people who also didn't know that they knew anyone who was undocumented, who had never directly heard the story of a dreamer told to them. So the ability of a young Harry Potter fan to explain why he couldn't travel across state lines in order to attend a fan convention became a point of entry for them into a larger discussion of the rights and restrictions that undocumented people faced in the United States. So it functioned both to bond a group of people together, and to bridge between with other communities, and to develop some shared vocabulary for talking about uh, what it, what those identities meant. So one of the first entries for us in the civic imagination was a discovery that the Superman narrative was one that particularly resonated with the undocumented youth. Um, they would say that they're they're. There's no such thing as an illegal alien, that people aren't illegal and they're not aliens. But if we imagine an illegal alien, it might look like Kal-El from the planet Krypton, whose parents send him away by spaceship in search of a better life on a new new world, who crosses the border in the middle of the night, lands at a farm in Kansas, gets adopted by an Anglo couple, who teaches him to hide who he is and where he's come from in order to protect him, but who nevertheless goes out and fights for truth, justice, the American way of life, while wearing his ethnic garb since the Superman costume is built from fragments of cloth that were found in the spaceship that he traveled with from his home planet. Telling that story allowed them both to develop a sense of mythic significance in their own lives, but also allowed them to bridge with, for example, the Harry Potter Alliance and other fan groups that knew that story of Superman well and felt that it helped them to understand what it was like to be undocumented in in new ways.
5: Yeah. And if I could maybe just jump in there a little bit, sort of as I'm thinking through how that case study could relate to what I was speaking about with the American Muslim youth, I think what I've seen sort of post after the, since the book was finished is really, much more um, of an effort to bridge to other communities. Uh, and, and I think that has really come out of kind of a maturation of this process of storytelling where there was this this process and yes, it was as fraught as I described and some people definitely were silenced or others moved more into the activist, activist space like, like what Henry is describing, Dreamers kind of more courageously coming out and through that bridging with other communities. And I was just speaking recently with one of the, Um, sort of conveners of the youth group, one of the youth groups that I looked at, um, Adina Letkovic, who's an advocate, who's an American Muslim advocate here in Los Angeles, and she was actually talking about how the current climate, in the U.S. is in fact kind of she was jokingly saying Christivity where we're kind of in a crisis in some ways but also out of it has come an opportunity to really leverage all of the work that I was describing in my chapter that was happening across different communities and move it to the next level in terms of thinking through those identities that were developed in all these different across these media.
0: I, I just want to add too I mean I, I think um in thinking about the, the dreamer case, you know, and going back to what Henry said earlier about uh, critiques of youth online activism as slacktivism. Um, you know, what, one of the main critiques is that um, online activism isn't risky. It's not putting yourself out there in the streets and putting yourself in physical harm for um, a cause that is important to you. But with the dreamers in particular, I'm, and, and, um, now more than ever, for Muslim Americans as well, um, online activism is very risky. I mean, you're putting yourself out there and you're at risk of deportation. So um, I I, want to sort of point to that as a thread that runs through both of these cases as well. That um, And something for educators and people who work with youth to think about that their online activism or online lives isn't sort of like a separate thing that um, exists when they're at home, but that um, by divulging this information in public and connecting to others in this way, they are taking a really brave and risky step um, uh, to be talking about, um, whether it's their status, uh, their immigration status, or um, their identity as American Muslim. So I, I just want to kind of put that out there too.
2: I think that's fascinating. And I also hope it's okay if I just jump in and just notice something about... Um what I was thinking about, as as Henry was talking about how the story of Superman kind of resonated with dreamers, I was thinking about, you know, how Sangeeta's research really helps us see what young Muslim American, or American Muslim writers kind of have to navigate when they want to participate online. And I think, like, you know, in the same way that a dreamer might be cautious about what they, what they publish online, uh, a young American Muslim now has to think about this, this job that they feel saddled with, which is to combat the dominant narrative, and I was really intrigued as I read, you know, the chapter about how they're kind of doing that in, you know, strategically through the use of humor, you know, and the idea that by poking fun at the way they're surveilled or, you know, this, you know, the stigma that it might carry to, you know, to dress like a Muslim and be, you know, outwardly Muslim. Um, I thought that was fascinating, just that. From an educator perspective, you know, just understanding that, that, you know, that's a a mindset that I wouldn't have imagined, that they are intentionally trying to be funny about their culture, both to speak to to you know, older Muslim community, but also to combat this dominant narrative that you know we're also familiar with.
5: Yeah, well, there's a long history of um, of humor, right, as a as a subversive mechanism to subvert power but also as a way to to render visible inequalities and through that Do the work I think very much what like what Henry was describing with the civic imagination Do work in terms of establishing the community within people who've experienced it, but then also bridge out um, And and make connections so in a way humor and we laugh um, in certain ways when we laugh in certain ways and sharing something we open um, the possibility to be open, more receptive to something. So you kind of use it to bridge out. And I feel like actually kind of an, an aging generation of American Muslim comedians um, really did that very effectively immediately post 9-11. So in the sort of intervening years around, yeah, 2002 to 2006 or so, they, they there were these several initiatives that I describe in the chapter that were really stand up comedians who were doing this. So what I actually was seeing, in my work was much a much more dispersed, collective way of doing this. So it would take happen over Twitter in response to some some sort of hashtag. I think the one I described in the chapter had to do with hashtag Muslim Rage, which was this really offensive article that was put up. I think by Newsweek. Now I'm suddenly blanking, but yeah, I think it was, and that they thought they would generate discussion about what it means to have angry Muslims, and in fact, it ended up being completely subverted and and made fun of on Twitter. And so what I, I really was excited about was seeing this sort of networked humor happening um, through through the case study that I was looking at, which is different from the sort of stand-up comedian and, and shared through YouTube kind of comedy. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, sorry, it's a two-edged sword. I just wanna kinda, as I'm thinking about it, because it's there's a like, clear distinction, but sometimes it's really not clear where that border lies between laughing with somebody and sharing a space and then laughing at somebody and kind of making fun of them, <laughs> or, or dismissing them, or in fact, reinforcing the power division.
2: Sure, and and as I was reading, it really made me call to mind for me a joke that I heard Aziz Ansari make recently, where he I think he just said that we just need more shows where Muslims just eat nachos, right? That they don't, <laughs> they're engaged in plot lines that have nothing to do with terrorism or anything. They're just like spilling nacho cheese sauce on their shirt. And the idea that, you know, you know, them, you know just the inanity of just sort of being a Muslim and still you know being bored is something that would be novel to American audiences. And being boring, and
5: right? Like being right. A way of being boring. There was the, that's another. Um, I described described the all American Muslim um, reality show, which actually went off air after one season because it was so boring because the Muslims were so normal. Um, <laughs> it was actually not really worth watching but it was it actually also was fraught because there were there were reactions to that saying that this is lulling americans into thinking that muslims are normal and that they're not this was kind of the islamophobic reaction to that was that we really need it we cannot do this we cannot portray them as normal people because then we will think that they're normal and we will not be aware that they're in fact plotting against us so it was this bizarre um view on that, where in fact even just sitting and eating nachos can be seen as dangerous by somebody. It was a really bizarre twist on that.
4: (laughs) So I'm wondering if I can take the conversation in a slightly different direction, but Sangita, you just mentioned a really interesting phrase which resonates with me uh, and some of the tensions I think that maybe many educators, whether they're in formal K-12 or university settings, or educators who work in maybe what we might call less formal, informal, everyday settings. You talked about sharing space. And I'm wondering if all all of the authors can comment a little bit upon some of the tensions and some of the opportunities that come with sharing space with youth. And sharing space with youth through their media practices, through some of their cultural practices, perhaps through some of their political activism, and some of the opportunities as well as some of the barriers that might arise when educators try and maybe amplify that youth activism, or share that space, or need to let perhaps youth lead that activism and lead that expression, and that creativity on their own, and maybe what role educators can play in that work.
0: I, I mean, I just want to say, and, and maybe then move it on over to Netta that one thing that educators can do is support students' interests. Um, support young people's interests, whatever they may be. So not try to know what all of the platforms are and know what all of the interests are necessarily, or be part of them, but to support students in following their own passions and interests, um, in the classroom and, and outside. So, and and Neta's um, chapter was on Harry Potter, the, the Harry Potter Alliance, which was a group who really did, um, you know, come together to utilize that shared interest toward a greater good. And so I would say for educators watching to um, I mean, cause I can't keep up with everything. I think that's an impossible task, right? I, I can't know all, uh, there's like a new platform, a new thing, a new hashtag every day. Um, and, and, and I think that's um, as important as it is to understand technologies and, and to use them in the classroom um, yeah, let, let your students be leaders by um, doing work around things that matter to them. Do you want to add to that, Meta?
3: I think maybe building on that, um, I think part of that comes also with um, respect for and maybe sometimes overcoming some of our preconceptions about what can or cannot um, be used uh, in sort of an educational um, manner. Um, So I think the Harry Potter Alliance is indeed an interesting example of that. The Nerdfighters even even more so perhaps, as I mentioned uh, quickly, this is a a group of um, an online community um, that grew around um, two vloggers on YouTube. And to the outside of They seem to be mostly, um, or followers of the Nerdfighters seem to be mostly engaged in um, inside jokes and um, sort of, you know, silly videos. Um, But for for young people who are part of this community, we did find it to be uh, sort of a strong uh, entry point into also thinking and learning about um, civic and political matters. Um, So sometimes we were just surprised by the places and the sites where we found young people um, finding their own connection to the civic and to the political. And I think that particularly um, in sort of a fraught political environment, and given what Henry talked about in the beginning in the introduction of how young people today um, are either apathetic or um um, I mean, it's seen as apathetic, but often, um, I think that that is misunderstood. More than that, they um, feel often repulsed by politics. I think we really have to um, look for these places where they can find these connections and try to um, to encourage these even when they're when they're in places that surprise us or we don't expect them.
1: You know, one way I put this in the past is that, Young people don't need adults looking over their shoulders. They need adults watching their back. And it's not about surveillance in the sense that Sangeeta has been talking about. It's not about policing or regulating or taking control of young people's political voices. It is about mentorship. And work out of Howard Gardner's group at Harvard shows most young people don't feel like they have an adult they can turn to on issues that affect their online lives. Uh, and those are compl- that's a complex space. We're all still trying to figure out what it is to conduct our social lives online, what it is to construct our identities online, what it is to construct politics online. I would say if teachers had a mo- important lesson, it's in part to think about accountability for the information we circulate online, especially in this era of fake news and alternative facts. You know we have the object lesson of a president who routinely passes along, conspiracy theories and rumors, and deflects responsibility for the accuracy of that information by saying, oh, I heard a trusted journalist say it, or I thought it was an interesting thing to contribute to the conversation. That creates a series of teachable moments where we should think about, right, if you're in an information environment where you're a key element in passing information to your friends, and they're encountering news on your Facebook, not on the evening news or in the evening paper, then you should own the information you pass along and ensure that it's accurate and comes from a reliable source before you introduce it into that conversation. And I would say that's maybe the most important discussion teachers to bring in around all of this.
3: Um, Maybe
5: if I can sort of, yeah, to kind of all of those end, (laughs) Um, I think the some of the work that we've been doing around the civic imagination with Henry is maybe relevant here in the sense that what I was hearing, um, Liana and I actually did a webinar a few weeks ago with some American Muslim students and their educator Amira, uh, Amira Saidi, so they were talking about what how, what they would like in the classroom or what they would actually like to see happen and. Um, I think sometimes well-intentioned teachers can kind of put students on the spot inadvertently, and you know, sort of in wanting student, in wanting to create a space in which students can feel like they can speak about their, let's say, American Muslim identity, for example, they put them in the spot and kind of inadvertently, kind of. Ha- force them to represent a community they may not feel comfortable speaking for. And so I feel like there might be, it's just really important for educators to be cognizant of that even, and that that can happen quicker than we think, right? That we, that that can kind of happen very easily and that it's actually very difficult for students to deal with because they don't, they feel like on one hand, they want that space, but on the other hand, they actually don't, they, they don't feel qualified or they feel like a lot of pressure happens there. So some of the work that we've been doing on the civic imagination kind of takes takes a step away from discussing issues directly and uses the metaphor of storytelling of stories and fictional stories and surfacing stories that inspire you and why do they matter to you and then working with students to remix stories across differences. And, and I feel like the metaphor of the stories or the imaginary space that those stories open up is in fact incredibly helpful in these contexts where um, students can feel put on the spot or there can be a sense of feeling somehow um, that the that the issues at hand are so so tortured that they cannot be handled directly.
3: I want um, Sangeeta maybe to connect to one more thing from your chapter that I thought is um, is very relevant, and that's the idea of uh, precariousness. And I was thinking a little bit um, when I read through your chapter again now. And the work that um, I was doing with uh, with my colleague Joanna literat around um, youth reactions to the 2016 US elections now on different websites and I'm wondering if in some extent this um, this idea of precariousness that you applied in your chapter to the American Muslims and I think we can also uh, could apply well to the dream activists in our in our book where um, it was very clear why participation was the was for them uh, precarious. I think in some way in, in our research now, when you look around um, youth reactions to the elections we saw um, youth from um, from other backgrounds, different websites, also presenting or talking about politics in a way that um, mirrored a little bit of this sense of precariousness, where they were presenting around the elections or um, often their around the election results, and in the same breath, we're sort of worried about the implications of, um, of what that expression would mean um, in terms of their um, family, in terms of um, government surveillance. And I'm wondering if, if um, that is something that resonates with you, if maybe this notion of precariousness is maybe growing now, if um, more people are feeling today that um, participating politically and expressing themselves politically is a precarious thing to do.
5: Uh, I would say both things are going on where I think we see some of what you're describing that we definitely see in the sense that um, clearly discussions of of surveillance are much more front and center for the general population than maybe they were prior to the 2016 election. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm not really no expert, so I cannot comment on that. But I also think that we're seeing a, a new resolve, actually, and a new kind of dreamer-like coming out as undocumented kind of resolve on the other end of that, where there's also the sense of now we need to actually stand up and and be visible in different, in, more, in ways than maybe we weren't before. I'm sort of speaking, we, in terms of the imaginary we. Um, so I feel like I'm seeing both. I wonder, you know, which is kind of interesting, but yeah, I, I, I don't really have, I think definitely some of what you're describing is definitely going on, but I also feel like it's it's maybe counterbalanced or it's accompanied by this other side of like, it is now an activist act more so than before. Maybe that's kind of, maybe I'm thinking, now I'm, now I'm purely thinking out loud, but maybe it's, it's a recognition that in some cases some of the things we posted that we thought lightly or we didn't think ha- were um, as dangerous we're much more conscious of how maybe they could have a at- digital afterlife that we didn't expect so there's kind of an aware a bigger awareness of that so maybe that's both leading to more precariousness but also to more determination I'm, I'm, I wonder if others have thoughts on this
2: well anyway, i just like to, oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I want to say quickly oh sorry Henry go ahead you go ahead I guess I I would just say like you know current events in the most recent election probably kind of render the whole internet as a precarious public. And so I really thought the chapter was fascinating because it, it spoke to the way Muslim Americans perceive, you know, these spaces they engage in as precarious. And I think it also highlights the importance of like the role of the lurker of the person, the lurker who just wants to stay safe and observe from a, from what they feel is a safe distance, all this precariousness.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think precariousness can mean at risk or risky, but it can also mean unstable or unsettled. And in some ways, these conflicting tugs that Sangeet is talking about do create a moment of precariousness of being pulled in multiple directions. And I would say that creates a context where choices have consequences, and we're more aware than usual of those consequences. So in that sense, precariousness describes not only the fear but also the euphoria that's come out post-election of more people taking to the streets, more people participating in protest movements, uh, trying to change things because you suddenly are aware that there's something at stake and that even some fundamental values of American democracy are at risk, that there's something worth fighting for. And I think we're we're seeing more and more young people around the country discover where they're willing to take a stand at the current moment. And I think that's a very important process for this generation to be going through. It may be that this turns out to be a period in American politics, similar to the mid to late 1960s, when the counterculture and the student protest helped to define the identities for the baby boom generation.
0: I think, too, you can apply the notion of precariousness to the classroom and the role of the educator, too. We did a a webinar a couple weeks ago, maybe more like a couple months ago now, um, where we sort of were wrapping up um, thoughts on our Letters to the Next President project that we did at National Writing Project, where students wrote letters to the next president um, in the classroom. And um, something really stuck with me. One of the teachers on that webinar just said, I'm really... I haven't been talking about politics in my classroom. I'm really tired. I, I feel this sense of fatigue and I don't know sort of how or where to tread, given the fact that my students have different um, political opinions and we're in this sort of um, fraught moment. I'm just ignoring politics altogether Not talking about it in my classroom. And so I'm wondering if Ramy and Joe, particularly from kind of the educator perspective can talk about how opening up conversations like this, reading a text like this together, annotating together, for instance, could help sort of um, navigate, help could help educators navigate that precariousness, that sense of fatigue, that sense of where to go now um, with, um, talking about politics or civics in the classroom. Yeah,
4: you know, I'll take a crack at that and I'll do so actually if, if Sangeet, I can actually kind of reference something you said earlier, uh, which I thought was just such a beautiful comment. You said uh, something along the lines of if I, I could like write a different chapter now, essentially, uh, revisiting this work in light of current political contexts, And of course, tools uh, like the hypothesis platform and the social practices that are afforded by web annotation actually allow, allow us to do that. Whether it's our own chapter that we wrote or whether we're a reader and then a kind of co-discussant in that, uh, we can use these annotation tools to begin to have conversations with one another and kind of rewrite these dialogues. And so I, I wanna kind of riff off of that to say that in reference to Liana, your question about educators, I think that Joe and I felt motivated to provide um, the kind of social and technical architecture where educators could say engaged politically. I wanna have conversations with colleagues new and old. I wanna kind of wrestle with ideas and do so in a way where there's a very low barrier to entry and there's a high kind of rate of return on the social relations as well as, as you said earlier actually, the kind of playfulness but also impact of having conversations about topics concerning equity and politics and engagement and participation. And that, I think, was one of the main uh, motivating factors that allowed us to begin to organize the partnerships and the conversations through this marginal syllabus project. And we hope that educators and others feel, again, that kind of interest-driven desire to have this kind of openly networked public conversation using participatory tools like web annotation to kind of rewrite their own chapters now that are consequential to their own interests and ultimately to their their own teaching and their students' learning.
0: That's great. Joe, do you have anything to add to this? I want to be mindful of time, too. I know we started just a bit late, but um, we promised also to tell you how to annotate this text and get involved with Hypothesis yourself. So I want to leave a little bit of room for that. But Joe, or anyone else, final thoughts before we kind of wrap up?
2: I think one of the affordances, you know, being wary myself of just, you know, planting my foot in my classroom and saying, here are my political beliefs. You know, but I'm in a high school, so students can ferret them out of me pretty quickly. You know, they're I'm surrounded by smart youth. I think the other thing is I can put all kinds of texts in front of in front of teens that, you know, that convene these same types of important conversations that highlight nuance and highlight, you know, um, what a peer, a classroom peer's interests are, and still foreground texts that I think, um, you know, champion issues of equity without, you know, you know, being too much of the bleeding hearted liberal that I can be, you know, as overtly from the front of the classroom and text selection has always sort of played into the politics of teaching English.
0: That's great. Yeah. And I I feel like using annotation is in a way a very safe way for both students and educators for anyone to have a conversation, right? It's, you know, you don't have to sort of put yourself out there. You can have a conversation in the margins, in text, use images, use, um, you know, that as a way of communicating to me seems like a very um, safe and um, sort of, not neutral but um uh, productive productive. (laughs) thank you thank you (laughs) so with that I want to let everyone know that um this text by Sangeeta her chapter is um being hosted at Educator Innovator right now so go to EducatorInnovator.org and click on blog and you will find, the the website's a little bit too long to share with you, so I'm I'm telling you how to to navigate here. So click on blog, and there is an explanatory blog um, that will give you a link to the text. It's a hypothesis-activated link. So what that means is if you click on the link, you'll be able to see all of the annotations that are already there on the text, and I see that some folks have already been busy, so that's great. All of the authors in this conversation, including our um, Lissa Soap from Youth Radio, who wrote the afterword to the book, and Aurelie Zimmerman, who um, wrote the Dreamer chapter, are going to be annotating along with us, too. So it's your chance to engage with the authors of the book as well. So check out the blog, and it shows you exactly where to find the text. You can read um, the text and the annotations. Uh, By following the activated link. And if you would like to annotate yourself, which we really hope you do, you can install the web extension um, for Hypothesis, log in and start annotating yourself just by highlighting the text and creating a comment. You can talk to other folks who are annotating as well, and it's really easy. We outline we have outlined the steps to install that browser extension um, on that blog as well, so that you can um, get started with Hypothesis and start annotating. And the annotation will be open um, through the end of the week, over the weekend. Um, is that right, Rami? Through the weekend, yeah, through Sunday. Um, so we hope that you hop on there and include your own thoughts. Do you have anything else to add, Remy, about kind of the or, or Joe, about the mechanics of um, engaging in, in marginal syllabus or, or how to get started?
4: I think you did a really great job of summarizing that, Liana. And I also just <laughs> want to mention, given the kind of political context of this entire conversation, um, we really support the Hypothesis Platform as a nonprofit organization whose code is open source who promotes a lot of organizational transparency and is itself a very politically active in some ways organization. And that's why I think we feel really comfortable using both the tool to have these conversations. It in and of itself can be seen as a bit of a kind of political act of kind of sharing multiple voices in multiple ways. So a big plug for them and for all of our work. And of course, to our authors for joining us in this effort, I really thank you all for. Taking the time and the energy to join us on the webinar today, but also throughout the week in this extended conversation. Thank you very much.
0: Well, we're thrilled about this partnership with Marginal Syllabus. We hope all of you will go to educatorinnovator.org to check it out. And if you're interested in following Educator Innovator, we hope that you'll also sign up for our monthly newsletter, which you can also do on the website and follow us on Twitter at innovates underscore ed. We're out of time right now, but thank you to all the guests. I could talk about this for like three more hours. So um, uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that online via annotation. So thank you all for joining us, and we hope you have a great one.
2: Thanks,
1: everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.